Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, we're talking about Joe Biden and his special relationship with Barack Obama. You know, it, Biden talks about Obama so much during the campaign, so much so that Cory Booker said during one of the debates recently, you invoke President Obama more than anybody in this campaign, but you can't do it when it's convenient and dodge it when it's not. So today we're going to talk about the relationship with Stephen Levingston. He's an editor at the Washington Post, and he's written a new book called Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership. And he's going to walk us through that relationship, and he's on the line with us right now. Welcome to It's All Political. How are you doing today? Great. Great to be here. Good, good. And you were in, uh, you were in the District of Columbia, or are you in Maryland, or where are you at? Well, um, I work in, in D.C., definitely, with the Washington Post. And uh, so I want to talk to you about Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary uh, Partnership, your new book that's out. And I want to talk to you, uh, obviously, in the, in the context of the current election. But um, I think it's, it's helpful to remind people of the Biden and Obama relationship, mostly since Biden refers to it so often on the campaign trail. And, and, and as you write in the book, it was not necessarily um, – a, you know, a love at first sight between these two guys. Uh, as you say, it was an odd couple from the start. Obama, you write, is a, was a young cerebral African-American who sweated over the precision of his words. And Biden was, quote, an older chummy white guy given to impulsively speaking his mind. And uh, the one thing I, I laughed at very early was uh, your, your retelling of, the, of when Obama was a young senator in a committee meeting listening to Biden. He writes, uh, Obama writes on a pad, uh, to a, an aide, quote, shoot me now, as he's listening to Biden drone on and on. So talk about these the, their sort of origin story of, of these two. Um, well, you, you got right to the core of it, I think, there in some respects. Um, but, you know, they, they met in the Senate. Um, you know, Obama came in and he was the new star of the Democratic Party. He gave that incredible um, speech at the Democratic National Convention in 2004, which you know, everybody just was focusing on him and he was going to be the future of the of the party. And he just became this huge celebrity arriving in, at, in the Senate. <clears throat> and at that time, of course, Joe had already been in the Senate for more than 30 years and he was of a different ilk. He, he was raised basically in the Senate and believed in the institution, believed in the hierarchy. And he looked a little askance at, at um, Obama, who was a man in a hurry. And um, Joe sort of wanted uh, uh, Obama to slow down, even though Obama made, tried to make it clear he wasn't going anywhere soon, even though in the back of his mind, I think the presidency was always there and soon. But, um, you know, um, they, just, they just had a different way of, of thinking about the Senate. Obama wanted to get things done fast and quick, which he had done as, a, as an Illinois senator, and it didn't happen that way in the U.S. Senate. So, they kind of they kind of rubbed up against each other, you know, uh, in in the wrong way right from the start. And, and and maybe we should back up a little bit earlier than that, where you know, famously, uh, Biden's uh, for and, and Obama's first interaction was not necessarily a good one. Um, Biden kind of kind of torpedoed his second presidential bid on you know, almost on the day it started. It was supposed to be launched when he when he famously said in an interview that Obama was quote. The first sort of mainstream African American who is articulate and bright and clean, uh, end quote. And and uh, as you point out, Obama 
actually handled it very uh, calmly. He didn't go off on him. He, he, he pointed out that there were several African-American president, presidential candidates before him, like uh, Carol Mosley Braun and Jesse Jackson, Shirley Chisholm, uh, et cetera. And David Axelrod told you that that moment was very significant because, quote, he could have turned the screws and he didn't. Do you think that was – explain the significance of that thing because wouldn't I, you know, I would be pissed off for life if that was – if someone said that about me. Yeah, I think Obama was – he was pissed off at the start, but I think his general nature is to be gracious. And he, he was very gracious at that point, and he sort of understood that um, – he knew Biden's history um, on racial relations and, and civil rights, and he knew that he was a man of great integrity on, all, on those issues. And really what it came down to is something that sort of framed the entire relationship and frames Biden today, and that's he just sometimes – really badly misspeaks. He doesn't get his words out the way he'd like to get them out. He kind of messes up his, his syntax, his language. His, he just, you know, he has a problem with um, how he expresses himself. And Obama, to his credit, recognized that early on and sort of saw that it really wasn't that important. And it really wasn't that important throughout the, throughout the relationship when they were president and vice president, as I, I talk about a lot in the book. Um, but it also, I think, signified something else about Biden, which doesn't get enough play, really. And that is the guy, when he was very young, was a terrible stutterer. And stuttering is a, is a very, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a disability and it's, and it's a real troublesome thing for a lot, of, a lot of people. And there's a disconnect between his mind and his mouth. People take him to task for that now. But a lot of times, if you listen to him carefully, you can see him stopping himself, reaching, and trying to come up with the right word, and sometimes the wrong word comes out. And there's a thing about stutterers as well, as I've, I've read up on it a little bit. So when they do get to the point where they, are, they feel like they're about to stutter, they'll change their language to make it seem like they won't go to that word that will cause them to stutter. And I think that might be in Biden's mind some of the times when he does make these, these misstatements, that he's... He's just sort of suffering from really a kind of disability that he, he magnificently overcame by pure will. Um, and in some respects, that's really what's behind a lot of his misstatements. Yeah, and he also has uh, – I, I, more I've heard about the, the, the stuttering and trying to, to put that in context and hearing him a lot more recently. I saw him at a fundraiser at Dianne Feinstein's house a couple of weeks ago. He will go to – a set phrase, like when he keeps, he, he frequently says, it's no joke. It's no joke. Do you think that's a, a, a sort of a, <laughs> a safe spot, landing spot for him when he, when he could be veering into stuttering and he'll, he'll go to one of his sort of set phrases. It's no joke where there's really no joke even being implied in that sentence. I think that gives him time to think. It gives him time for his mind to calm down a little bit. And I think you're right. And what I've noticed when I, I listen to him like that too. And one thing he also does, which is maybe one of those phrases that he captures himself and slows himself down is when he says something really long, he makes a point and then he says, number one. And then he goes to number two, instead of saying number one first and giving you the point. <laughs> so he's, he's sort of got these, um, I don't know what you'd call them, sort of not tricks, but but it kind of ticks. Uh, not ticks, but you're, they're 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 more pre. Uh, they're po- seem like more predetermined. They're right. More well, it's it's a method for dealing with what he has to deal with. Yeah. I think, and he sort of established that you know over a very long period of time. Yeah. Um, so uh, now this this partnership uh, obviously took off, and and you say it was uh, <laughs> one thing you said. America has a weakness for buddy teams: Felix and Oscar, Bert and Ernie, Buzz and Woody. But there there was a racial element. Uh, to it too that was that captured folks, and um, you you explore something that I always thought was kind of a 
photo op thing was the the famous beer summit early in the Obama presidency. And, and you draw some significance out of that. Explain to us again what was the beer summit and what brought it on. It was a very serious subject that, that inspired it. And then Obama's, or I'm sorry, and, and Biden's sort of, uh, uh, you know, how he kind of changed the dynamic of it. Right, right. Well, that was the, the famous moment when um, Professor um, Gates at Harvard University was basically arrested in his own house for kind of breaking into his house because he didn't have the key and somebody on the street saw him and, a, and an officer of the, of the Cambridge Police Department came and arrested him. And there was altercation between him and between the, the officer and, and Professor Gates. And um, it blew up into a, into a great racial incident. Um, Professor Gates is black. The officer was white. Well, right. Exactly. And, um, you know, Obama sort of wanted to, to not jump into the middle of it, but he decided he, he had to. And this was an interesting moment for Obama because he sort of made his own gaffe when he doesn't normally make gaffes. And he went, he went before the public and he said that the police officer had acted stupidly in arresting um, Professor Gates. Well, the media and everybody jumped all over that, that he was sort of criticizing the press or criticizing the, the, the police for doing, you know, what they felt was necessary at that moment. And, uh, the controversy grew and um, there was an attempt to sort of mollify the situation by having the the officer, the professor and Obama um, meet at the White House and the Rose Garden and have a beer and just sort of talk it through. Uh, Biden wasn't necessarily in this thing from the beginning, but right towards the end of it, he showed up at the at the at the uh, gathering. And so he joined the men at the table. I think what was significant about this is a couple of things. One is you know, you talk about their buddy relationship and the racial aspect of it. From the beginning, this was a black and white friendship partnership that actually worked beautifully. They never talked about really the racial aspect of their relationship, but they just showed it. They sort of demonstrated to America that, yes, this is how the races and, and leaders can get on. And um, they, don't have to, they don't have to go into detail about it. Just watch them interact. Watch them work. This is you know, the ideal of what everybody hopes America might be. That was part of it. And then um, Obama, as some people have argued, really wasn't that forceful in putting forth um, progress on, on race, racial rights and, and racial issues because he was a black president. He felt he couldn't go too far. The fact that he said the police acted stupidly sort of showed that when he went a little bit too far, um, and this was very early in his in his term. Um, he got shot down for it, you know. So right. Biden, with all of his um, background in civil rights and his understanding, he had he he really was a, a guy who got along with minorities and, and blacks in a very good way. He could sort of you know speak the language in a way. He helped Biden in many ways. I mean, helped Obama in many ways navigate the racial terrain of America. And this beer summit also helped him do that because when he came to the table, he became the guy who was sort of the outgoing character there. He was able to balance the table between two whites and two blacks at the table. And he was able to sort of like um, kind of create an atmosphere that maybe could promote racial harmony. And I, I talked to, you know, Michael Eric Dyson, the professor at um, Georgetown for the book. And, you know, he said something very interesting to me about this particular incident where it's sort of highlighted in some way in, in, Dyson's, word, in Dyson's words that, Obama, that Biden 
was really the blackest man in the White House. And I thought that was really an incredible <laughs> statement. Yeah, and in some ways, given Obama's reticence to jump in deeply into to racial matters, there may be some truth to that. Yeah. No, but but Biden, and I wanted to get your take on this because Biden has taken some hits during the campaign about his attitude uh, on, on racial issues, whether it be his stance on busing, uh, you know, back in the mid-70s. Uh, to He was asked a question at uh, the second debate, I believe it was. Uh, he was asked, the question was, uh, how do Americans need to take, uh, what do they need to do to repair the legacy of slavery in this country? That was the question. And he went on a very long-winded, uh, not surprisingly, explanation. And he said, quote, we bring social workers into homes and parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't. They don't know quite what to do. Play the radio. Make sure the television, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. Make sure the kids hear words. The kids coming from a very poor school, very poor background will hear four million uh, words fewer spoken by the time they get there. Now, uh, the top line interpretation of that was people were goofing on him for, uh, you know, name dropping a record player. But, you know, deeply, and we wrote about this in the Chronicle, was um, how there's a sort of a paternalistic attitude towards race there. Like, you know, here's how they should parent their children. Um, does that jive with the Biden you know, or, or where does that come from? Is that just a, a 76-year-old white guy talking about race, or what, what, what's that about? I think I think that's a good part of it. I mean, he's, you know, part of the the rap on him right now in this campaign is he's an old guy. He's, he's old school. He looks at things from a different perspective when, when issues and and, you know, matters were discussed in a different vernacular. And he's sort of stuck in that in a little bit. But I don't think that really, um, and again, I think that, 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 rant, that, that thing he said in response to that question was, again, an example of him not being t- totally prepared for, to answer it. And he sort of was grabbing at various strings and he didn't really know what to say, but he was trying to get at something. But I think overall, it doesn't totally negate his whole career in terms of how he works with and has worked with, um, you know, different races um, and talked about racial matters and tried to work through them. I think part of the, the problem these days in the campaign is that people like to telescope in on certain moments and think that that defines an entire candidate. And I think all candidates are subject to, the, to that. And you kind of have to look um, through the, the entire career, I think, to get a full portrait of, of who these people are. You're listening to my conversation with Stephen Levingston. He's the author of the new book, Barack and Joe, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. My guest is Stephen Levingston, author of Barack and Joe. You uh, tell a lot in the book about the sort of the uh, what Biden brought to the ticket in terms of, uh, you know, complimenting Obama on certain things. Um, but something came up in, in, the, in the last debate that I wanted to get you about. It, it, is he kind of overstating what he did there? Uh, in the last debate, Biden said uh, he was the only person who had gotten anything big done, on, as it, referring to the other people on the stage. He said, quote, from the Violence Against Women Act to making sure that we pass the Affordable Care Act to being in a position where we, in fact, took almost a $90 billion act that kept us from going into depression, making us, putting us in a position where I was able to end row, excuse me, I was able to end in the sales, I'm reading this verbatim, end the issue of gun sales in terms of assault weapons. Now, he's referring to the, the assault weapons ban in the, in, the, uh, in the mid-90s, which 
you know, I think Diane Feinstein might have a, a major hand in that as well. Um, is he taking too much credit for what he did in the Senate and 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 uh, in the um, and as vice president? Well, I think in some cases, sure, probably hyperbole. Everybody on the campaign yeah. trail, you know, engages in it and tries to make the best image possible, you know, and sort of stretches some things. Um, but you know, he was also a you know a very effective vice president and a very helpful and, and powerful vice president in helping guide the administration to, you know, quite a few of its successes. That said, you, you're right, he, he sort of glues himself a little bit to Obama. And if there were failures on the, in the Obama administration, he got dinged for this. I think it was in the previous debate. You know, if there were failures, he has to accept those as well, instead of just trying to say that he was, you know, the guy who was only there for all of the successes. <laughs> right, so right. It Cory goes, Booker, it I goes think, nailed him on that. And you can't, you know, he has, to, he has to own up to it all, and he has to, you know, maybe tone the hyperbole a little bit, but that's ain't, that ain't going to happen in a campaign. <laughs> right, right. I think last debate, Cory Booker says, quote, you, would, you invoke President Obama more than anybody in this campaign. You can't do it when it's convenient, then dodge it when it's not. What um, the, the age question came up in the last debate. And I, I don't want to ask you to play doctor here um, or gerontologist or what, what have you. But, um, you know, as someone who has studied Biden over the years and, and who has, you know, delved into his uh, recent past and, you know, his history, do you – should – are any of these things, these gaffes that he says on stage now, these things or whatever they you want to call them, is this – how much of this is age or is this – is this in line with the way he's always been? Is this Joe Biden – is this the Joe Biden that we know or is there is I mean, have you noticed any sort of tail off? Right. I think there's a baseline for Joe, which does cause these gaffes or causes him to speak funny. Um, and I do think, you know, maybe he's not quite as completely sharp as he has been in the past or as he was, you know, 10 years ago when he was with Obama at the beginning. Um, but you have to also look at I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, it's really hard to know. I mean, as people age, um, they still have the qualities that they had before, and they may not be quite as strong as they were. But look at somebody like Nancy Pelosi. She's no spring chicken, and she is still kicking strong and doing what she needs to do. If you look, I don't know, we're not looking back at her, you know, 20 years ago or whatever to see how she was then. She was probably a little different, maybe not as fast, but she's still as smart and as quick. And I think those qualities are still there in many respects um, in Biden. Um, there's another aspect to it, too, is that in some ways, when he was vice president, it was a lot easier being Joe than it is being Joe on his own trying to run for, right. the, for the big office. And so yeah. I think he gets sort of deer in the headlights sometimes about being the only guy up there and having to speak totally for himself and not being able to sort of play off of his buddy Obama. And, and together, it's always easier when you have somebody next to you who you can sort of, um, you know, buddy up with. Here now he has to be the main guy. And I think that has changed his approach a little bit. He's not, he's not as Uncle Joey as he used to be because he feels he has to be more serious because he's going to run for president and be president. And that's to his detriment in some way. The, uh, you, you touched on a couple of things. You touched on uh, sort of in, in one of the latter chapters um, an issue that came up just as Biden was starting to jump into the race, which was his, uh, his touchiness, which was a, a mark of his – uh, I mean, his entire career, but certainly his time with the, with the president. You, know, you, you talk frequently in the book about you, you see two men showing affection to each other. It's uh, 
it's uh, somewhat unusual, certainly with the vice president and the president, you, you know. Um, but what what do you make of the, the, the comments that from a lot of women who have worked, uh, you know, with him or, of, uh, you know, other candidates and they say, well, it's, it's a little bit he's in your in your space a little bit too much. Is that is that something is that another sort of, you know, man out of time moment for Joe Biden or what do you, or is it something more insidious? No, I don't think there's anything insidious there. And no one has ever said there really is. It may right. make people uncomfortable. But, you know, there, and I, I report in the book, too, that some of the, the male reporters also, in essence, get biden And getting biden <laughs> is having him in your face. He's a, he's a very outgoing, gregarious guy. He likes to touch people. He likes to be with them. And there's, there's one, you know, place in there, one of the reporters who was on the train with him talked about him talking to him on the train and pushing up, you know, they were sitting across the table and they were touching knees and, and he was leaning across the table and just really getting in his face. This is a male reporter. Um, so it's just... It's, it's a character thing that I don't think is anything insidious. It's just the guy is a gregarious, warm fellow. And he also comes from, an, and again, this is a little generational. He comes from an era of, of politics where people were a little bit more glad handy and, and right. you know, back slapping. And, um, and it just conformed to his own character. So he, he's kept to that. And he can't, you know, I think he's toned it down as, as those reports came out about women feeling uncomfortable about him doing it. And per- they're perfectly, you know, it's perfectly reasonable that they would do, they would feel that way and, they're, and, and that they should say that. And he probably has toned it back um, because he has to, again, be the man on his own and present the proper face. My, I think my favorite chapter of the book was, I believe, the last one. And sort of it's a sort of postscript uh, of sorts about, you know, where they <laughs> – what happened to these two guys, uh, uh, Obama and Biden. Um, and you touch on how uh, – Obama didn't, and you know, didn't sort of. Uh, he discouraged him uh, from running um, in 2016. It was, of course, fresh off of the death of uh, his uh, son, Bo Biden, um, and he has not endorsed him now. And Biden says he he, he asked him not to endorse him. Um, do you? I got, I got to, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of got the feeling uh, just from from the last chapter that Obama. You know, while he's still friendly towards Biden, it was almost like a marriage of political convenience that's over now, and he's moved on. Um, did is that what is that what you're getting? And 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 you you pull from Biden's biography or, or autobiography memoir, uh, and is, he sort of alludes to this. What what do you what's the state of their relationship now? And I mean, should we should Democrats be concerned that that Obama hasn't endorsed his uh, former vice president? Well, I mean, as we know, yes, it began as a political marriage and it existed as a political marriage. And what was unique about it is that within that context, they were able to develop this great affection and really adoration for each other. I think it was true. And I really do think they, they, they adored each other. But that's what makes this, compli- this, this relationship so complicated was that the, there was always politics involved. And the politics were really the personal politics of, of Joe Biden and, and Barack Obama, where they might not have the same ambitions for, for where the country should go and for where, where they wanted to go. I think towards the end of their, their terms, their term together, um, you know, Biden, of course, was thinking about the presidency um, while Obama was thinking about his own legacy. And in Obama's eyes, his legacy really is to be a path 
um, breaker, a trailblazer, a revolutionary on the political scene that remake, remade American politics as a first black president. So he was more, I think, in favor of Hillary Clinton because for his legacy, her election would cement it because here we had the first black and now we're going to have the first woman following him. My God, did that, did that Obama really remake the American landscape? He sure did as opposed to supporting somebody like Biden in 2016, who is sort of a throwback to the way that politics always has been after Obama busted that ceiling for, for, for blacks. So there's, I think there's that element of it. Um, and uh, it, it was always sort of a, a, an overhang um, in, in the relationship. Yeah, interesting. And uh, we should add that I, I want to get you to think also by uh, that neither of these guys, Biden, uh, neither Biden nor Obama spoke to you for this, which I thought was a missed opportunity because you you do weave a lot of the context of the relationship together. Uh, you know, the, you trace the whole history of it very beautifully. Um, what did they say any say any reason why? Um, well, I think. Well, no, not really. I mean, I, I asked repeatedly to try to talk to them. And I think it might have been that they realized that a, that a new election campaign was coming along. They didn't really want to go on record um, saying too much that might um, come back and bite them in any way. You could certainly mm. see that in, in, in terms of Obama. If he spoke too glowingly or if he said anything about, you know, Biden's future in this book, um, it would have been played in a way that he might not want. Um, right. You know, and just to get back to your question about, you know, not him not endorsing um, Biden, the, you know, the, the, the question there really is, I think, in some respects, you know, Obama has one shot, one giant shot on an endorsement. He's, you know, the most popular guy in the Democratic Party. He wields the most power behind the scenes in some ways. And and his words really carry weight. So, for him to endorse anybody before there's a bona fide um, candidate for the Democratic Party could only diminish his endorsement if that person didn't wind up being the candidate in the end. Um, so he, he really has to, you know, he doesn't want to spend that capital, I think, even, you know, endorsing his so-called buddy Joe right now or back then, whenever, um, because it would diminish any anything that he did in the future in terms of endorsement and actually being on the campaign trail. People would say, "Well, why you wanted the other guy before? Now you want this guy." So it's you know it's a complicated again. It's a very political problem. Well, uh, Stephen Lennington, the book is called Barack and Joe: The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership. Thank you for taking some time with us today, and thank you for being it's on it's all political. Great, great to be here. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Stephen Lovingston for joining us today to talk about his book. I'd like to thank the King, King Kaufman, for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether your relationship with your best friend is real or political, it's all political. It's all political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle podcast network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.